What is up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of Fed Watch. My name is Ansel Lindner, and I am here with my co-host, CK. How are you doing, CK? I am doing good. I'm a little under the weather, but pushing through. Excited to be here. A lot to catch up on. How you doing, Ansel? Good, good. Yes, we uh, did not have a show last week, of course, because of the Amsterdam conference, which I unfortunately did not get to go to. Hopefully we can hear some highlights here up uh, up front, but we have a big show. Yeah, we're going to catch up on UK updates, China updates, talk a little Bitcoin, talk a little Europe energy crisis. So lots on the plate today. But what what give us a recap of your experience over there in Amsterdam, CK. Now, it was a lot of fun. Honestly, Amsterdam is just an awesome city. So honestly, it's kind of hard to mess it up. But it, it was a great event. You know, bear markets really bring a curated crowd, a lot less tourists. We had about 3,000 diehard Bitcoiners, the majority of them from Europe. And it was, it was a great event. We had three different stages. The majority of them were standing, a standing room the entire time, which is really awesome to see. We had a few really hard-hitting panels uh, where, you know, advocates on the ground fighting for fighting for humanitarian causes in you know in battled regions they they're talking about bitcoin and how it can help them and and how they've been using it so those are the narratives i love to hear the most obviously tough times but yeah it's it's great to kind of just see bitcoin being taken seriously in europe and uh, obviously you and i think that that's important so it was great times obviously it kind of hit me hard it hit a bunch of people hard everyone partying a little bit too hard but getting a lot of attention as well we 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 were at the same exact time as a central bank conference too so i got an uber and a guy was like bitcoin or central bankers who are you working for so obviously <laughs> i said it was bitcoin that's cool. So did you have, I mean, I watched a bunch of clips and there was a bunch of people talking topics around macro. Did you have any macro conversations behind the scenes with people? What are people thinking about? What's the general kind of feeling, I guess, in the Bitcoin insiders of the macro situation? Yeah, I mean, people think that Europe is in for troubled times still. There's an enormous amount of kind of anxiety and fear about what is happening in Ukraine. You know, obviously, I felt a lot closer to it when it was happening. I was flying in. That's when the strikes on Kyiv on Monday happened. So it really kind of hits home how close it is to Europe. It's on the continent. But at the same time, you know, there was a lot of excitement in the air as if, you know, Bitcoin was the future that we were talking about the right things. And there's this kind of defiant optimism, whereas throughout Europe right now, I think there's just a lot of fear and people just looking on the outside, looking in, they could see it. Yeah. One thing that struck me was Bitcoin Amsterdam happening. Of course, that was the headline conference, but there was a couple other conferences going on. And I was like, man, this is like the industry, even though we're at close to the bottom, right? We're at close to the bottom and and in the bear market, but there's still enough of the, I guess, liveness within the community to support all of these conferences. And I think that is super bullish because just think back a couple of years. I mean, I've been in Bitcoin for a long time, but if you think back to like 2015 bear market, there's no way there would have been enough uh, of this, I guess, optimism out there, the, the holders of last resort, that there wasn't a lot of us at that time to support that type of week long, three different conferences. So I, that's, that's one thing that I noticed big time from this bear market is that it is just a bear market, but it's a bear market that has a lot more optimism and a lot more activity actually. No, absolutely. I think every single bear market has more optimism and more activity, but this time it just really shows Bitcoin staying power. And I think that that is just going to continue. It's going to, get harder to bring the honey badger down. And I think that the enthusiasm amongst the community is going to just be contagious, especially as the world has really nothing better to offer. So I think that, uh, yeah, I, I definitely think that it's super, super bullish. This was a bear market conference, but it was a pretty big bear market conference. Yeah, well, I just have some technical difficulties here. I tried to reset my camera to HD, and now it looks like it kicked me out. So let me try to real quick. Yeah, just just leave and come back. I'll I'll entertain everyone. Leave and come back. Okay. So I want to tell everyone here about the newest Bitcoin magazine. We currently have 500 of these awesome 
El Salvador President Bukele-themed collectible bills that we are sending out with new subscribers to the new Bitcoin magazine. So you're going to get the upcoming Orange Party issue and then the next three issues plus the collectible bill. I wish I had one on me. I cannot wait to get my hands on this magazine and on this collectible bill. But yeah, I mean, y'all are going to want to get your hands on this. And honestly, just go to the Bitcoin Magazine store. We are loaded with awesome swag, collectibles, stickers, Are you know it. We recently dropped uh, an awesome corduroy hat, Satoshi Nakamoto, in two different colors, brown and black. So Kanye West recently was pictured wearing a very, very similar hat. So if you want to get on that Satoshi Nakamoto vibe, go to the Bitcoin Magazine store, store.b.tc, for, yeah, store.b. Or sorry, store.bitcoinmagazine.com, my bad, and use BM Live to get a discount, obviously. All right, Ansel, we can see you. You're back. Should we get I'm into back. the show? Yes. Okay. So first up, let's get into the Bitcoin chart. Let's pull that up first. Of course, that keeps us grounded. You keep us grounded, Christian, on, on uh, Bitcoin. You being so intertwined in the industry, you keep us always grounded on Bitcoin. But starting here, you can just see we're in this pattern. We're going sideways. We've been at this price level around 19,000, 19,500 since june 18th so over 120 days i believe that is and we're just keeping grinding sideways i'm kind of waiting until we see what happens when we run into this red line this trend line and see if that is some sort of signal that that's time to buy we're going to break out from here again when i look at the price chart when i look at the some of the indicators on like the weekly time frame and other things i just don't see a lot of uh, bearish momentum even though we're sitting at the bottom there there I don't believe we have any risk of like a cascade liquidation to take us all the way down to some of the levels that people are talking about it's just a very I think encouraging consolidation compared to say the stock market compared to other things the volatility is very low and so I think all in all this the last couple months has actually been very positive and shown that bitcoin can can hold on can be strong and there is, it's not a speculatively driven market, at least completely. It is, of course, there is a lot of that. But this price has held on even despite all of the geopolitical stuff that's happened since June. We're still sitting at 19,000. So, what are your thoughts on um, the price for the last few months? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting to see it consolidate like this. I do feel like we are probably in for another leg down. So maybe when we hit that trend line, that's what happens. I think that there just needs to be a little bit more pain. But beyond that, I do think that Bitcoin has been impressive. Like it's catching mm -hmm. eyes. The haters are seeing it behave differently than pretty much all other assets. And I don't think other assets... I mean, obviously, a lot of other institutional assets, they kind of have that regular bid from invest, you know, savings, passive. you know, yeah, passive investing. So I don't think Bitcoin's passive bid is the same, but maybe it's maybe it's, it's more of a, a uh, an active passive bid, if you will, by enthusiasts who are very, very convicted. So it might be maybe it's not as big. It's it might be better so i yeah. think if bitcoin tanks the enthusiasts are going to buy it all up as quickly as possible and i think that's hopefully when we see some strength but ultimately you know if things continue to get worse in the macro sphere we're seeing a lot of leading indicators that the u.s economy is probably going to get worse people are going to lose jobs people are going to struggle it's going to be difficult for people to accumulate and maybe they'll even have to part with their bitcoin at untimely prices so just something to think about what, what's your take on the, you know, all-time high hash rate? It's just surging. It's kind of going exponential right now. So we have this huge surge in hash rate, which, of course, requires a lot of energy, or not a lot, but it requires energy during these high energy price times. And it doesn't seem to be daunting Bitcoin at all. I think that's another huge signal that there isn't, you know, there, the bearishness, I think, is just it's overplayed. It's overstated. If you look at all of the metrics in Bitcoin, everything is going up except the price. So what's your thoughts on the energy and the mining? Yeah. I mean, it's really going to be interesting to see how uh, inefficient miners are going to continue to deal with this ultra low hash price. Mm -hmm. uh, I was listening to uh, 
rabbit hole recap last week. Uh, great show by Marty Bent and Matt Odell, and they were talking about Maine, like putting on some new, very high-powered machines that are ultra competitive, and that skyrocketing the hash rate. Antpool has been mining a large portion of blocks recently, so. Yeah, I mean, there's the beautiful thing about Bitcoin mining economics is that they're the most competitive in the world and every inefficiency is going to get squeezed out. It's going to, again, like I said, it's going to be really interesting to see that play out. We may see hash rate dip a little bit depending on how bad things go for some of these businesses. But at the same time, it's very, you know, if there are new gen machines that can hash even, eventually they're going to make their way out. So where do they do most of their mining? I I would not be the right person to answer that question. Maybe we need to get uh, a mining expert on. I mean, obviously, China and that general region is kind of where they've historically been able to to mine. So maybe that is reemerging. I don't know. That's just pure speculation. Pure speculation. So, but who knows? Maybe a big sovereignty is jumping in too. Maybe I don't know. There's there's, rumors of Russia, right? Yeah, there's there, there's a lot of things that could be happening on that front, but I, I tend to agree with you. I think Bitcoin's price, the difference between Bitcoin and assets is that as the economy gets worse, it doesn't matter as long as Bitcoin continues to have utility. Eventually, that utility, people using it, plus scarcity equals price will go up. And that ha- has no speculation whatsoever. So that doesn't, interest rates don't affect that. But for... For now, I think, you know, that that utility and scarcity, it's really it hasn't taken hold quite yet. So I'm curious to what you think about Bitcoin's progress and and how it will shake out. Well, yeah, in these times, there has been a rush for cash, right? That's why the dollar we're going through like a dollar shortage, even though we have been told that there's been so much money printing. But the dollar is going up in value because people run towards safety and they run towards cash. Well, Bitcoin is way safer than the dollar, and it's becoming very, very stable here at 19000 So I think the more stable it becomes, the more that puts that safe haven bid in play. And we, we see things like gold crashing recently, but Bitcoin is staying rock solid. We see the stock market having volatile swings, yet Bitcoin stays rock solid. So it almost is like they're you know, slowly but surely it's going to be seen as a safe haven bid, just like the dollar. And of course, you know that I say that that is the ultimate showdown is Bitcoin versus the dollar eventually. Should we go to the next chart? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Next one up is stock market. I just put this in here. You know, I am a Bitcoin bull, but I'm also a stock market bull. I, I think a lot of the stuff in the U.S. economy is overly bearish and it. I, I, don't, I don't think that the next little while is going to be super bearish. I think we're going to, throughout the rest of the year, we're going to either form a bottom or we're going to start heading back up. And this time next year, we could be pushing back towards all-time highs. If you go to the next slide, that is just the dollar indices. So the green one is the DXY. And remember, that is heavily weighted against the euro, 60%, and the yen, about 15%. And the pound, I think it's about 10% of that one. So it's very heavily weighted towards these other kind of larger currencies. But the black line is the broad trade-weighted dollar, which is against 30 or so other currencies, including the, the Chinese yuan, the Mexican peso, and some of these other ones that are you know big trading partners. And for a long time, the, the trade-weighted dollar had not broken out above its COVID highs but just in the last couple of weeks now, it really has taken out those highs and is going much higher. And I, that, I put that down to stuff, the Japanese yen and the Chinese yuan are the currencies that are really kind of devaluing right now against the dollar. So it seems to be the East Asian currencies that are have, having the worst performance over the last couple of weeks, of course. <laughs> well, they're the taking British, turns, right? <laughs> they yeah. Are, yeah, they are kind of taking turns. But the euro is kind of stable over the last couple of weeks. The pound had had a really bad <laughs> like two or three weeks, but it has also been stable. It actually rebound, rebounded from like 103 all the way up to 112. So we'll see how that develops over the next little while. If you go to the next slide, this is what these East Asian currencies looks like. This is the Japanese yen. 
It's pushing up to 150 against the U.S. dollar. Really, really bad debasement. Even though when you look at their inflation rate or their CPI, it's still like 1%. So Japan, even though they have this big dollar problem, this big devaluation of the yen, their official CPI is still very low. I'm interested to see how this develops. I have some theories, but don't want to go into those right now. Let's see what else we got. That's it for the charts. Yeah, well, this is the 10-year gilt. I'm going to go into that when we talk about the UK. But do you have any thoughts on currencies like the dollar? I want to talk to you about real estate in the United States. Okay. So, I mean, I've been seeing a lot of speculation of real estate is the next area to take a really big hit. You've been seeing really like viral screenshots from reddit where you know homeowners are saying like don't like almost like hodl your house like don't let them squeeze you like they'll go up eventually this kind of like mentality the cope phase of a of like a crypto bear market instilling curious what you know you're bullish on bear on stocks you're bullish on bitcoin is that is that is that really kind of focused in on this idea that the fed will like put in a hefty pivot and 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 change course or I get, can you explain that bullishness and that does that extend to what I would say has been a very stable market, which is the real estate market, but also a market that seems to be teetering there and, and being very top heavy? Yeah. So the, the fundamental theory here is that, well, first off, the Fed doesn't control anything. So the Fed will follow what the market is doing. And I think the market is experiencing some financial stress like we see with the stuff going on in the UK. We've had rumors and stuff about Credit Suisse. Uh, the, the Fed is starting swap lines to the Swiss National Bank and stuff like that. So there is some signs of financial stress in the system, and that will force people back into US treasuries and push down interest rates, and that will force the Fed to pivot. If you look back at 2019, the, the market led the Fed. So the, the Rates started going down and then the Fed caught up. And that's exactly what is going to happen again. The Fed will probably continue to raise rates. I don't know at what speed, but uh, they will continue to raise rates until the market turns against them. Until, you know, the, the 10 year and the two year, they, everything is crashing down in the yields and then the Fed will pivot. Now, going towards the housing market, if that is the case, that yields inevitably will come back down. And I think probably sooner rather than later, the stock market will, or the housing market will get bid again. If you look globally at like uh, real estate markets around the world and historically big real estate bubbles, the US housing market is not in probably the top five housing markets in the world. So there's a lot of room to go higher uh, over the next decade. So until the housing market is disrupted by Bitcoin, and by that, I mean uh, some of the store value bid that is in housing goes into Bitcoin. Then I think the U.S. housing market is going to continue going higher. Okay. Yep. And I know I know that that's how you feel about the Fed. So <laughs> thank you for re-explaining it. But it, it's definitely good to think of it full circle. And uh, if you're right, it'll be very interesting. Here's another prediction here on FedWatch. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. All right, let's jump into the UK stuff. I did not, I did not look at the Fed schedule, man. I know I, t I told you I was going to have a, a list of Fed schedule. I know they have FOMC is coming up November 2nd, and then they have one more, I believe, by the end of the year. I'm not sure the date in December. So we're two weeks away from the next FOMC decision, and I do think it'll probably be 75 basis points. But again, if the rates turn around, if there's too much financial stress, then Imagine if they go to 20, I think that would be a huge bid to the stock market, a huge bid to Bitcoin. So anyway, so the, the other update I have is the UK and I wanted to go a little bit through the timeline and talk about some of the things that happened. Are you up to date on what's going on with the UK? At a very high level, and I'll have to admit to to the audience that you know we we definitely aren't experts in all the nuances that are happening in that market. So please forgive yeah. us for any slight inaccuracies, but we'll try to keep it high level to try to just go through whatever the drama is there uh, in terms of you know yes QE no QE a minister getting you know the the head of the central bank getting fired loss of faith 
and the prime minister very, very quickly, obviously, things are kind of in shambles there. And it's very interesting to observe UK politics, leaders come and go much more quickly uh, at some times than, than they do yeah. in other places. Uh, so uh, it's very interesting to kind of see. Hey guys, this is Q from Bitcoin Magazine Live. As the world moves increasingly towards the mainstream adoption of Bitcoin and other digital assets, Moon Mortgage will make it possible to materialize your assets in real estate. Through the collateralization of mortgages with Bitcoin and other digital assets, Moon Mortgage will be launching lending solutions to allow investors to easily leverage their assets to purchase investment in owner-occupied properties. Moon Mortgage's crypto mortgage will be launching soon for home buyers in Texas, Florida, and Colorado, and will be open to investors in most states across the U.S. for investment properties. Welcome to the future of mortgages. Visit moonmortgage.io today to register your interest and learn more. Moon Mortgage Residential is registered with the NMLS under number 235334. This podcast is brought to you by our sponsor, BitMEX. BitMEX is one of the biggest supporters of the Bitcoin space in the last decade, actively donating to developers and putting out some of the most cited research articles. What you might not know is that BitMEX recently launched a brand new spot exchange and mobile app that takes the experience of buying and holding to the next level. We know that, especially in uncertain market conditions, you need an exchange that is trustworthy and innovative. Sign up at BitMEX.com today, check out the BitMEX blog for some great market insights, and stay tuned to our podcast for more from their team. If you're like me and want to gain a deeper understanding of what's going on within the Bitcoin market and broader macro environment, you need to subscribe to Bitcoin Magazine Pro today. There's both a free and paid version of this daily newsletter where our market analysts break down what's going on in the markets so you don't have to. Subscribe today at BitcoinMagazinePro.com. Yeah, they're about to sack their second prime minister this year, like in in a matter of three months. So that's pretty crazy. But yeah, I just yeah, I also wanted to put out a disclaimer. You know, I've been watching China a lot more with the 20th Party Congress, which we're going to go into here in a second. So I haven't been following the UK stuff as much, but I did want to go through a quick timeline. So if you pull up that chart there, Chris, which was the 10-year gilt, that is, as you can see, the over the last few months from August, the 10-year rate over there was all the way down at 1.8%. 1.8%. And then in a matter of two months, it shot all the way up to 4.6%. And it really got out of hand in the last two weeks of the third quarter. And if you remember on the show here, I, in the past, I've said, you know, the end of the third quarter is when there was a lot of financial stress in the system. And so guess what they started right before the end of the third quarter? They started QT. Now, what kind of idiot starts QT right at like the most intense time of financial stress of the whole calendar year. These idiots did that. And so that shot the interest rates all the way up to 4.6 on the 10 year. And that was September 28th, the BOE or the bank of England came out and said, we're going to intervene with this, with our open market operations, whatever we're doing. It's not technically QE because it was centered around repo transactions. And it's really similar to what, the Fed did in 2019 with the repo rumble and what they did a lot of going into 2020. So it's technically not QE, but it is QE. Anyway, then they expanded that up to 10 billion pounds per day in reverse repos and, and accommodation, I guess you could call it, on the 3rd of October. And we kind of talked about this on that Fed watch that I think we did on the, th the 5th of October. Then they said their bond buying program was going to end on the 14th. And nobody believed them. Nobody believed that they could actually end it. And of course, then they ended up, they brought it to a close. They stopped doing their accommodative stuff. And now they say they're actually going to turn back QE back on, on November 1st. So that's kind of where we're at. And then in all of this kind of turmoil, there, were, there was this maybe correlated activity with the Fed and the Swiss National Bank. You probably read some headlines. There was a $3 billion swap line on one day. And then a few days later, there was a $6 billion swap line. So for a total of $9 billion, and we don't know who exactly it went to because the Swiss National Bank, you know, does these swap lines 
for other people that request these bailouts. We do know that it was around 18 entities. It's anonymous, but we know it's around 18 entities. So it wasn't all Credit Suisse, but it could have been anybody. It could have been banks in England. It could have been other European banks. It doesn't have to be just Swiss banks that go to the Swiss National Bank. And what I think was, is interesting to think about is if you're like some London bank and you need to get a swap line, what, the Bank of England isn't going to go during all of this turmoil and say, hey, Fed, we need a swap line. That would tank market sentiment even more, cause even more panic. Maybe they went to the ECB and the ECB said, no, we're, our market's too fragile. So the next closest place was the Swiss National Bank. So it could have been any of these players from around Europe that went in and requested bailouts from the Fed via the Swiss National Bank. But anyway, all of this stuff had, got pretty crazy. There was a lot of panic in the, in the market, but it has since kind of resolved. Now, a lot of people, I, I was the one saying, I think that there was going to be contagion from this and we should be watching out. Um, it does not appear to be that way right now, but like we saw in the great financial crisis, when one bank has problems and it looks like there's no contagion, right? They say Bernanke famously said, this is contained. Well, it's not really contained because what has happened is that the entire sentiment of the market has shifted to being more fragile. And I think that's what this has done. But for the time being, I think there, it is papered over and there will be a slight recovery and we'll just wait for the next shoe to drop, probably around the end of the first quarter. That's what I got for the UK. The clown show continues, man. It's interesting. Can't get over the central planners. They're doing, they're typically making things worse. And it's, again, I think the, the best metaphor yet came from FedWatch a few years back, but the monetary hurricane. So they're just adding to the, the craziness, the, the inability to forecast what's actually happening in the economy with their central planning. So that's, that's the biggest woe there. Yep. So that's all I have for the UK. Hopefully I can do a better update here in coming weeks if there's more to come from that. But let's move on to China. So China had the 20th Party Congress, and this is not getting a lot of headlines. You know, like what's happened in the UK, what's happening with the European energy stuff is getting a lot more headlines. But the 20th Party Congress, I think, is the biggest geopolitical event of the year and the biggest macro event of the year, maybe of a few decades because, you know, China being the second largest economy, let's see what they talk about in their five-year plans and what they tell you about their policies going forward. I think it's, it's a very, very important milestone for the global economy. And there hasn't, hasn't been a lot of headlines. So what I did was I asked Chris to put in the description to the video today of the entire transcript of Xi's speech. It's a two-hour speech, and I was going to try to pull out a few quotes from that, but I, I, it was too long and there wasn't any specific spot that I could pull out that made sense out of context. But I do want to say that they used the term Marxism like 26 times in there. They used the term distribution or redistribution of income, all, all of these Marxist calling cards. So for anybody that doesn't think that China is truly Marxist and communist, just, they, just go read Xi's speech there. And uh, I mean, it drips off the page with Marxist Leninist stuff. I mean, he says those exact words that China is a Marxist Leninist country. So anyway, I do have some quotes, however, from a BlackRock blog post. And I think that's the next slide up, Chris. So this is a just a blog post from a couple of days ago on the BlackRock website. So this is going out to BlackRock clients that these high powered investors, high net worth individuals are reading this, this blog. And the title is China's growth challenges go beyond COVID. If you go to the next slide, what I did was I pulled out a few quotes. And I think this is very important. So I'm just going to read these out here. China's export growth has already been slowing markedly since July. We think the volume of exports could actually shrink by 6% on average in 2022 and 2023, 
translating into normal export, nominal export growth of just 3%. So let that sink in. The volume of exports out of China are going to decrease 6% this year and next year. That's 12% total, roughly. And nominally, yes, there's slight growth, but the volume of it, people are cutting China out of the global economy. Let me continue. So instead of making a positive contribution to overall economic growth of 1.8% in 2020 and 2021, exports could make a negative contribution of 1.1% this year and next, and then see the chart. So if you go to the chart, actually, Chris, it's in the next slide. So you can see that that 1.8% is adding to growth, and then they have this 1.1% negative. So to make up the difference, what they're saying is there needs to be domestic demand growth. There needs to be productivity growth in China, and we're not seeing that. If you can go back, slide number seven, Chris. All right, so continuing. Losing that huge growth driver will make maintaining overall economic growth quite the challenge. All else equal, economic growth next year should have would have to be a substantial 2.9% slower overall. Given the loss of export demand, the only way to achieve a steady growth rate of 5%, roughly in line with the authority's target in 2022 and 2023, would be to almost double the growth rate of domestic demand. That could change afterwards, but we we shouldn't expect too much. Sorry, I'm having a small print. I can't see it too well. Why we don't expect a major change in the political landscape and the current authorities have shown themselves to be pretty cautious about implementing policies to boost growth, unlike their predecessors who went all out during the financial crisis. In recent years, the government has typically aimed for the minimum, minimum possible support as it worries about pro-growth policies resulting in too much debt, artificially inflated asset prices, or greater income inequality. When facing a trade-off between growth today and risks that could have a big effect tomorrow, the government has prioritized future stability. So what this is saying is, you know, they they just don't have, like they everything is lining up against them. They have a very high debt. It's actually the highest debt to GDP ratio in the world if you include public and private debt. They have the worst demographics in the world, which we'll get into here in a second. And they have this inflation problem. So there is, you know, their currency is weakening. So they, they have all of these things. They cannot stimulate. Yet that's where all their growth is supposed to come from. And I want to reiterate, this is BlackRock, the BlackRock blog, who I, I don't particularly like BlackRock in the grand scheme of things, but I understand that there are big heavyweights in the world and this is coming straight from their blog. So if we could go to slide number nine, please. Well, let me stop there. CK, do you have anything to add or anything uh, you thought about that section before I get to the next section? No, nothing in particular. We, I mean, I love to chime in now. We've been early about talking about what is wrong with China. While a lot of people say China is the new rising power, even earlier this year, uh, mm -hmm. for over a year, maybe even two, we've been we've been pointing out the issues with a state and country that identifies as Leninist and communist, um, mm -hmm. and how that will not be able to compete against a market system. So the fact that a BlackRock, which I think for the most part has been kind of aligned with a pro-Chinese thesis is now yes. turning around. I think that is really telling because uh, that's when, you know, all support kind of goes away uh, and people really accept that there's some issues here. And frankly, just seeing how the CCP is kind of acting and prolonging COVID when the rest of the world has kind of given in to normalcy for the most part, it's affected their their ability to export, which, you know, the world is just going to route around that. There's a lot of countries that are yeah. willing and able to take that production mantle on. Obviously, it's not easy to just pick up and go, but it's already been a trend and that trend can just accelerate. Absolutely. All right, let's go to the next one, slide number nine. So more fundamentally, the authorities don't have as much room to boost growth aggressively, even if they wanted to. Previous periods of slower growth, like in 2000, 2008, and 2015, came alongside rapidly increasing uh, productive capacity, which drove inflation down. That's not the case this time. 
which suggests that China's potential output, the amount it can produce before inflation starts to surge, is lower now. COVID controls are reducing potential output today. While they might be eased, we still think the potential growth rate of the Chinese economy might have fallen below 5% and could fall further. Sorry, motorcycle drove by. Could fall further around 3% by the turn of the decade. Now, I'll add here that no, it's (laughs) by the turn of the decade. If the exports are dropping 6% a year in volume, there's no way they're going to keep a 3% growth rate, even for the next two years. So by the end of the decade, I think we're going to see that in the next two years. Why? They ask why. Most importantly, the working age population, having grown rapidly, is now shrinking. And we'll see a chart here in a second. Fewer workers mean the economy cannot produce as much without generating inflation, unless productivity growth accelerates. But we think international trade and tech restrictions as well as tighter regulations on companies operating in China will dampen productivity growth. So now let's go to the next slide. And this is just a chart of the working age population. And you can see in 2020, it went below zero. And there's a little spike up here about 2025, but then it drops very negative. And this is the the fast or the, yeah, the fastest shrinking population in the history of the world. Uh, They are going to get old way before they get rich. So uh, very important demographics. The demographics is working against them. Okay, next slide. Now this is the conclusion of this blog post. So putting all this together, we don't think China policymakers will take aggressive measures to boost growth. It's possible the removal of COVID controls could give a bigger than expected boost if it happens more quickly, but there's no clear indication of pace yet. Looking through the COVID ups and downs, we think the slowing demand and grudging Uh, policy offsets as supply growth slows means growth will average significantly below pre-pandemic rates in coming years. What will that will have knock-on effect on the rest of the world. In the past, when countries faced a slowdown, they could still rely on Chinese consumers and companies to buy up their cars, chemicals, machinery, fuel, even as consumers at home tighten their belts. And they could rely on China to continue supplying an abundance of cheap products as China's rapidly growing working population enabled it to keep production costs low. Not so anymore. Recession is looming now for the U.S., U.K., and Europe, but this time China won't be coming to its own or anyone else's rescue. So that is the blog post from BlackRock. Any closing thoughts before we move on to Michael Pettis? It is interesting to kind of hear about how this is going to affect the U.S. and other nations. You know, obviously, China has been a massive force in the global economy for a long time, pretty much the entire, all of the 2000s. And so, you know, the last 20 years or so, you know, I know that you kind of have some theories there, why that's good for the U.S., why that's good for localism why wow, that's good for other developing nations, but in the immediate term, well, it's going to, it's going to have some pains. Ansel, what are you going to say? Well, I don't think it's necessarily good for those things. I think that it will lead to those things, you know, inevitably. So I think that the, the way that the market is going, the way that the world is going, the way that human society and the global economy is evolving is beyond anyone's control. And I mean, it doesn't matter how we feel about it, right? It is going to happen. We're going to a multipolar world, if you can call it that, or a multi-regional world, and that will have spill-on, knock-on effects towards localism and also towards trust-minimizing currency, which is one of the big bids under Bitcoin. You know, trade between these regions, these powers aren't going to trust each other. Well, you need a currency that is trusted, that, you know, that embodies that trust so that there can be trade between these regional powers in the world. They're not going to accept credit. Okay, China's credit is not going to be good in the U.S. or Europe. Russian credit definitely isn't going to be good in Europe. So there's, you know, these regional powers need a neutral currency to trade with. And that is part of Bitcoin's story for sure. But let's move on real quick. Oh, did you have something else to add? No. No, Okay. Let's move on. I agree. Yep. All right, we're running short on time, so we're probably not going to be able to get to the European stuff. Maybe we can touch on it briefly before we... We can do it. 12 more minutes. Let's go. We have to bounce. Okay, so this is Michael Pettis, and he is... uh, If you guys aren't following on Twitter, 
make sure you follow Michael Pettis. I can't remember his handle. I think it's Michael X Pettis or something like that on Twitter. And uh, he is a professor at Beijing University, I believe. Pretty well-known and well-established economist that's working over there in China. And I, I just love the stuff that he puts out. But here, this is what he, a tweet thread he put out about the what's happening here between provincial governments or regional governments and the CCP in Beijing. So uh, he's quoting from an article and he says, quote, the Ministry of Finance said government-backed entities would be strictly prohibited from purchasing land by raising debt last week, describing the practice as a sham, end quote. The Ministry of Finance is right, of course, but this doesn't address the original problem. Allowing local governments to reverse the decline in land sales revenue by setting up SPVs to buy land from themselves was simply a way for them to borrow money and pretend the proceeds were actually land sale revenues. This was extremely risky because, among other things, it meant that the local governments were effectively doubling down on their already excessive exposure to the real estate market. The Minister, Ministry of Finance was absolutely right to clamp down on this practice. Next slide. But local governments are desperate. Their revenues have dropped sharply, even as their expenses have risen. What is more, they are expected to fund a wave of growth next year. The Ministry of Finance stopped them from faking revenues without addressing the reasons they had to do so. Beijing must know how difficult the circumstances are that local governments face, and yet isn't doing much to help. I think we are probably seeing the beginning of what over the next few years will be a very contentious relationship between local governments and Beijing. And I'll say that his analysis here agrees with what the BlackRock was saying, is that they don't have room to do stimulus. All they're doing is they're clamping down on this these faulty accounting practices, but not addressing the underlying issue. And they probably won't. And so Michael Pettis here is... This is a big statement saying that there's going to be a contentious relationship between local governments and Beijing. Now, the history of China does not like contentious relationships between local governments and the ruling power. You know, they, the, most of the history is warring states. It's, very, it's rare to have a consolidated China. And so that's one thing I've been saying, too, that the risk of kind of revolution is not zero over there. And Michael Pettis is saying that right here. I mean, he might not have intended to say that, but that's what I think people that are at least amateur students of history will read that statement and be like, oh, damn, there is some risk of China actually having social upheaval. So what do you think of what Michael Pettis there said? Very interesting. There's already been social upheaval. There's been a lot of social upheaval already, and we, we don't even see the majority of it. But it's happened with these banks. It's happened with people not wanting to repay their loans. It's happened with people saying that they're not going to make their payments on the real estate that they're waiting to get built that's not getting built. We're seeing on social media people like using humor to get around the CCP censorship. You know, obviously there's a, a, a black market for Bitcoin mining and Bitcoin itself in China. So I think we've already seen social people and it's likely just to get worse. But again, this is kind of the problem with like these mandated growth from governments, these expectations with socialism, it just does not work. So it's going to create contention. And I think people are going to look fondly at the days when markets were a little bit more free to operate in China and ask, why are we doing this? Absolutely. All great points. Okay, so we have a few minutes left. Let's try to get through some of this stuff from Europe. So this slide here is the Dutch natural gas futures. This is the front month contract, and you see it's just really dropping hard here. I wanted to compare that to the U.S. contract. So you can see the price there is, what, 113 on on the Dutch. And if you go to U.S. nat gas, it's at 5 uh, so there is a huge discrepancy, but also the price here in the U.S. is crashing as well for natural gas, not just oil. So oil is down at around $85 a barrel. So energy in general, the futures contracts are trading much lower, much more in line with normal. Um, now, we did have Andreas on. If you go to the next slide, we did have Andreas on a couple weeks ago. 
And the reason why I got him on was because he was talking some sanity. You know, he was trying to fight the the Armageddon narrative in the European energy crisis going on. And I was trying to do similar talking about the dollar. And so I wanted to get him on it and pick his brain on that. But here, this is a, a tweet thread from, I think, this morning. And I wanted to read through a few of these things. So he says, the gas and electricity prices are dropping fast in Europe right now, and they are likely going to drop further. What's going on? Natural gas prices have dropped from greater than 300 euros per megawatt hour to levels just north of 50 euros. And day ahead prices are even lower in many areas of Europe. Next. This is a chart of the natural gas features like I just had with the Dutch contracts, but also he has the German in here, the German one. But prices in Spain, he says, have dropped as low as 27 euros per megawatt hour for gas, as there is currently a queue of ships waiting to offload outside of Spanish LNG ports. Next slide. So this one, damn, the print is really small. This has led LNG within day prices to trade sub 25 in Spain. Next slide. Again, here's the Dutch, Dutch natural gas futures. Fill levels in European gas, sorry, fill levels in European gas storages are approaching 100%, way ahead of the deadline of 1 November and paired with milder than usual weather. This leads to very low net spot demand for gas. And actually, I, I paired this with the wrong chart. So if you go to the next slide, that this is the chart of the storage. And you can see Hungary is the only laggard here. But of course, Hungary is also the one, the only European country that's still getting Russian gas. I think actually Italy is still getting some Russian gas, but Hungary is the main one. So they're the only one that is below this 80% threshold. So he says, Germany is, for example, still running large daily net injections into storage through mid-October as one, the flow is decent, two, the temperatures are mild, and three, natural gas consumption among households and industry is it's below 2021 levels. So if you go to the next slide. So this is the German natural gas chart showing the demand by season. And the orange line is the current, I guess, storage. And so you can see it's, it's very high getting ready for winter. There is hence very little, sorry, very limited scarcity risks for October, November. And the arrow points clearly down for prices as a consequence. LNG ships are queuing up and there is nowhere to place it. Now we're, we're starting to get to a situation like in April of 2020 when the oil futures went to zero. They actually went negative because we, we had a situation there where all of the storage tanks were full. All the storage tanks were full and many of the large oil tankers were actually just sitting offshore full. So there was nowhere to take physical delivery. So everybody that had a, a oil contract, they, they had to dump it. They had to dump it at any price because they couldn't take delivery. There was nowhere to store it. There was nowhere to put the gas or to put the oil. And so they, they had to dump the contracts and that's why it went to zero. Now we're coming to a similar situation in a crazy twist of fate here. We're coming to the same damn situation with LNG. These ships are sitting queued up offshore. What happens when these futures contracts come for delivery and those, these tanks are full, the ships are full waiting to unload. I mean, it could seriously, the price could drop to zero on some of these LNG contracts. It, it's, it's just crazy what has happened to this energy market. But let's go to the next one. And this is the last one. So, oh man, the print is very tiny. I'm not going to be able to read that. This is likely going to bring the entire natural gas and electricity curve down in coming weeks at the very least until the heating season really kicks in through November. The Armageddon scenario is for now not worth talking about, but, and then he talks about 2023, how there still could be some knock-on effects in 2023. And I think that is also the case, but it looks like for this winter, for the next couple months, we could have an energy crisis in Europe with prices at zero. That, I mean, let that sink in. How 
disrupted is this market? It is an absolute clown show. All right. Back to you, CK. I, I, I was thinking clown time. show too. I was thinking clown <laughs> show too. So God, you guys, <laughs> political actions does crazy ass shit to markets. It really does. You just got to let the markets work. You got to get out of the way. The markets are trying to heal themselves right now. They're trying to cause some pain to people because they, they have to heal themselves. That, that's, the, that's the problem. But we're bumping up on time, man. Any uh, closing comments for today? Y'all, I'm sorry for my lack of enthusiasm on the show. Definitely deep in sickness right now, but we'll be better next week. Excited to come back. And there's just there's going to be a lot more of the, the clown show in the yep. clown world to unpack from a macro perspective here. I want to give a quick shout out to the breakup. Look up Count BTC on, on Twitter and on YouTube. But my man Nolan Bowley is going live every single day and talking about clown world. And yeah, I mean, he used to be on Bitcoin Magazine Live. He is back, y'all. He goes on at 8 a.m. Eastern every single and I've been loving what he's doing. So check that out. I think the two most high quality, high signal shows there are are FedWatch and uh, and The Breakup. So check that out. And for everyone wishing me to get better, thank you very much. I appreciate it. The love, I feel the love through the comments. I see you're drinking tea. You're getting your hydration. I'm hydrating. I'm hydrating, man. I'm trying. All right. Yeah. For me, guys, just follow me on Twitter at Ansel Lindner. Check out my telegram, t.me forward slash Bitcoin and markets. I live stream every weekday now on telegram and I'm simulcasting that to Twitter spaces. So check that out and check out Bitcoin and for my free weekly newsletter. That's it, guys. Let's go. Peace. What is up, audio listeners? Thank you for enjoying another episode of FedWatch. Down in the show notes, you will find all the appropriate links to our social media, the original version of this podcast, and community links. Also, check out BitcoinAndMarkets.com, where I put out a free weekly newsletter every Friday. And there you can also help support the show by signing up to become a paid member. See you next time. Hey guys, this is Q from Bitcoin Magazine Live. If you're like me and want to gain a deeper understanding of what's going on within the Bitcoin market and broader macro environment, you need to subscribe to Bitcoin Magazine Pro today. There's both a free and paid version of this daily newsletter where our market analysts break down what's going on in the markets so you don't have to. Subscribe today at BitcoinMagazinePro.com. The censorship-resistant issue of the Bitcoin Magazine print edition is available now. Grab your copy at your local Barnes & Noble store or head on over to the Bitcoin Magazine store and use promo code BMLIVE to get 10% off of your order today.